Alright everyone, welcome back to 80s High, the podcast that dons furry bikini shorts, refuses to use its weapons, and throws a mountain-sized pile of nostalgia at the problem. We're your hosts, I'm Ben. And I'm Chris, the powerhouse. (laughs) (laughs) And this is 80s High. How's it going, man? Uh, I'm doing well. I've got my like muscle suit on. You know, there's like the sumo suits where you can like get in sumo wrestle. And then they've got the kind of like the the padded muscles and just, you know, you look like you're a beefcake. I've got those on. And yeah, I got my furry boots. I am in character. So many muscles. But first, we have a few topics to get to before the school day actually starts here in Homeroom. Mm. Uh, first, Christopher, did you see the news? Did you read this? Did you catch it? We are finally getting a sequel to 1988's awesome paranormal comedy, Beetlejuice. Oh, I don't think I saw that. No. It came out uh, news in just the last couple of weeks. Warner Brothers is officially developing the sequel. Who's on board? Michael Flippin' Keaton. I mean, obviously. Has been talking to Tim Burton since 2014 to make it happen. Oh, wow. That's... Dang, nine years? Whoa. Right? It would be amazing. Now, it's like, it's just saying it's in development, which is very early stages. I got no deets. I got no deets for anybody. Okay, so we don't know about, like, Gina, Alec, Winona. Right, is Winona. I mean, Winona's still kind of hot, though. Like, Stranger Things is just ending. That's what I'm saying. Sure, her dance card's going to be free. I'd love to see Gina back in something. Haven't seen her in a hot second. God, she would be great. Oh, and the mother, Catherine O'Hara, of course. Everyone, yeah, what is she I mean, to? talk Come about on, people O'Hara. everyone loves. She's delightfully wacky and wonderful in all the best ways. She's incredible. That scene where they like, um, come Mr. Tallyman, yeah. and they're like dancing around the dinner table. If we could get the ghost with the most back, I'd be stoked. As with all of these comebacks, always skeptical, but open, right. open to open. the ideas. So we'll entertain. Uh, I guess we'll find second out. Second of three, I did mention Stranger Things. And as a follow-up, we just got this year's class of inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And who was among them but Kate Bush? The oh, famous, yes. you know, running up that hill from uh, Stranger Things last season. You have to imagine that kind of pushed her over. Because, I mean, especially if it's by fan votes, I feel like it's never been a better year for yeah, Kate Bush fandom. <laughs> totally. Than season four of Stranger Things. So uh, that's great. Amazing. I love it. Congratulations to her, all the other inductees. Great, great artists going in. It was a cool list this year. Very excited about it. Nice. The last thing, of course, we're recording just a few days after May the 4th. May the 4th be with you, Christopher. Did you celebrate the Star Wars holiday in any way? Nah, I don't do that. You didn't bust out your little Chewbacca costume and go for a little parade or anything like that? Listen, I was stitching together my He-Man muscle suit, so I didn't have (laughs) any time. I had to, like, focus all of my attention into this IP. Well, you can reuse them. Like, if you start as a Chewbacca, then you can cut a little bit off and make your fur bikini out of what's left. Or, hold on, are there any beefcakes in Star Wars? That's what I need to know. Oh, yeah. Who's, like, totally a Rancor? The Rancor or, like, the Wampa? 
They're totally jacked monsters. You know, that's weird. There's not a lot of beefcakes in that uh, universe. Like super, su- overly muscular built Star Wars character. Yeah. Maybe in some of the cartoons, you know, they get really stylized with it, but like not in the I know this is in the 80s, but like there was a whole thing about like uh, Adam Driver when he played Kylo Ren, mm. when he did like, when he was just in his pants in a scene, he got real jacked oh, for the Kylo yeah. Ren role. I guess that's the closest beefcake. Maybe. Hmm. But it is relevant for 80s high because Empire Strikes Back came out in 1980. Return of the Jedi came out in 83. But what's fun is my brother just visited, who is older than I am and has a lot of the original Star Wars toys in my attic. So we got to sit there and go through his Star Wars toys. And I heard a lot of like cool stories and memories of like how he played with the toys when he was a kid and what meant a lot to him. And oh, nice. that was really cool. I had never heard those stories before. It was great. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that so much. Uh, is there anything else 80s related that you, that you might have encountered uh, since we talked about the zany world of Weekly World News? Just one quick thing. I did a road trip this past weekend, and my friend and I were jamming out to some tunes in the car. Ooh. And she was like, hey, you need to put on all-out 80s playlist. And I was like, is it literally what it's called? And she said, yes. And we played it, and it's actually pretty nice. Because, you know, a lot of the playlists, I mean, there's so many. There's countless of them on Spotify, right? You can find a playlist for anything. But usually it's like 80s rock anthems, 80s new wave, you know, it's something like that. Really specific. Yeah, the all-out 80s was kind of nice because it was really like genre sweeping. It had some good samples from different parts of the 80s and also some what I would call deeper cuts. It's not usually what you think of when the playlist comes on and it's kind of like the top greatest hits. Like there are some others out there. So I just want to say if you're looking to jam out to a a broad swath of 80s music, put on the all-out 80s playlist next time you're listening to Spotify and uh, the joyful stream will just uh, be pleasing to your ears. Good recommendation. Also, where you're on Spotify, you could look up the 80s high 80s playlist, which we once made, I think in season one. We've got a public playlist out there somewhere. Oh, that's right. Our mixtapes episode, right? Yes, the mixtape episode. That's right. Um, So, uh, you know, after you've played the All Out 80s several times, you know, give us a listen. Go to the definitive 80s playlist (laughs) for maybe (laughs) Sci Podcast. Well, I do think it's time we get the engines rocking and we jump in our Wind Raider vehicles uh, and fly down the hallway to history class to learn about this week's topic. I can't wait. So we are here in history class, and I'm very excited. This is another big, beefy topic. I think beef is going to be the word. Like it's like it's like Pee Wee Herman's Playhouse. When you're going to say beef, you go. Yeah. But we're going to cover again, just like our Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles episode, a toy, a cartoon, a movie, a comic, a lunchbox, a pretty big IP, big enough for two bouncing, dancing pectoral muscles. Um, <laughs> we're talking about He Man. And the Masters of the Universe. Mm-hmm. Christopher, this is always an exciting move. I don't do this very often in 80s High, but I picked a topic I know nothing about. I was just like a hair too young for He-Man. Never had the toys. Yeah. And it just kind of missed me. But I think, you know, and reflecting on this one, as a young little boy in the 80s, it would be assumed I should know all there is to know about He-Man. And I don't. So I feel like this was also a brave stab at history for me to take this one on. Yeah, for sure. And I think part of this too is this is early 80s that 
this show comes out. The cartoon, I think, is the the biggest part of it, right? The cartoon and the toys, I think, are by far the, yes. the pinnacle of this, as we'll kind of talk about when we go through the uh, the various history and uh, timeline of, of He-Man. But um, it had like a pretty short run, and it was in the earlier 80s, and you being the younger of the two of us, I yes. felt like I was at the tail end of it. And I was born in 79. So I do feel like if you weren't already like at that prime age when this yeah. hit the market, it was really easy to miss it. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. It wasn't around that long compared yeah. to maybe some other IPs out there. As we'll learn, as we'll learn. Two more important things before we really get into it. One, I have chosen not to uh, comb my hair up tonight, which on our video chat gives me a page boy haircut. I'm trying to embody Prince Adam to really understand where this guy was coming from. You are rocking a total Prince Adam. It's not blonde. It, like that would have been it's the one blonde. extra step. If you came with huge. a, a blonde dye job, I would have been like, oh, he's really Can you committed imagine to the bit. Committing the to the bit. <laughs> oh, really living it. Uh, and the last thing before we dive in, I just want to say I'm really excited. This is a listener requested topic. You know, several mm-hmm. months ago, we had a, a listener from the class of 80s high write in classmate Chad, whom neither of us know. Usually it's our mothers recommending topics. But finally, you know, someone <laughs> we didn't actually know called in, emailed in, said, hey, love what you guys are doing. Could you apply that style to He-Man? I love it. And I want to know what you guys have to think. So, Chad, thanks for writing us. And we are we're going to do it. We're going to get into it and really appreciate you uh, brought it up for us. Absolutely. So, Christopher, since you did Hmm. explain that you were more familiar with this topic, can you give us a little background on He-Man and the Masters of the Universe? I was worried you might do this to me. Okay. So, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. This is a fictional world of Eternia. This is where this all takes place. We have our main character, Prince Adam. He is the son of the ruler, the king and queen, who seem to be ruling together. And... Adam has this secret identity we don't really know about. See, Prince Adam is a little bit of like, well, he's a disappointment to the king for sure, but he has an alter ego because he has the uh, sword of power. Yeah, he does. And it is imbued with the power of Castle Grayskull. And when he wields the sword, he can turn into He-Man, the most powerful man in the universe. And in doing so, he can do battle with his allies against Skeletor and his evil minions and forces who are trying to overtake Castle Grayskull. And I believe in doing so, wield all of its power. I think Skeletor has like a little bit of its power, but he wants it all. Yeah, Skeletor has the other half of the sort of power. And if he can get He-Man's sort of power and smoosh them together, he can unlock Castle Grayskull and like bring a whole bunch more evil into Eternia through a portal. Okay. All right. So that that's the little part I missed. All right. So no, Orc, Orco did his homework. I'm here. I am ready for school today. Wonder Twins activate. They put the swords exactly. together. All the power. Okay. So it's the your traditional yin and yang, right? You've got the forces of good and evil and some sort of balance in the eternal struggle. That's, I think, where we landed. A minus for effort. B plus? No, I think you nailed it. I think that is I think that is perfect. Uh, you know, Skeletor, the main enemy, has a massive cast of henchmen, sort of like a Ninja Turtles toy line. Oh, yeah. Uh, and He-Man's main allies are the Sorceress, Tila, Man-at-Arms, and Orko. He also has a cat, 
which man I can't wait to get into mm. a giant cat like a tiger like a like a sad raja from Aladdin called Cringer yeah it's a Bengal tiger with different color variants instead yes. of orange and black it's what green and yellow yeah 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 green and yellow yeah who's like a very sad scared cat yeah but when he-man when uh prince adam turns into he-man he can point his sword at cringer and without consent turn cringer <laughs> into a giant uh booty kicking feline known as battle cat yeah so that's kind of the background story and i really wanted to start off mentioning may the 4th because you don't get He-Man without Star Wars, which True. I never knew. This is so fascinating. Yeah. He-Man begins with what I would call Mattel making probably the biggest mistake of its existence. That's my hot opinion. That's my hot take. So this is like when you think of people who turn down a role for a breakout movie. Yes. That person... In the later interviews, like, I so regret not taking the lead yes. role in this movie, if only. Doesn't Mattel turn down making Star Wars toys? That is exactly what went wrong. So in 1976, uh. the proposal for the line is on the desk of Mattel CEO Ray Wagner. And he has the opportunity to produce the entire Star Wars toy line. Mm. But it came with a price tag of $750,000 for licensing. It's a little over $4 million today. Wow. Also, Lucas and the rest of uh, the whole Star Wars crew wanted the toys ready by Christmas 1977. And Wagner says, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of time. And he passes on it. Now, don't get me wrong. Mattel's been very successful. But dude, dude. I know, Dude. but, you know, that's always the, the hindsight 2020 kind of scenario. You can look back and be like, what a flippin' idiot. But also, like, Star Wars wasn't Star Wars back then. Yeah, not yet. Not that we like, knew it was going to be. Most notably, that first movie, particularly the first cut, like, maybe he went to that initial screening and was like, yo, everybody, I saw that first cut of the movie. Right. You know, it's just going to tank. So, I and that's a huge price tag, seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a that's deep for an untested unproven, IP. Yeah. yeah, kind of an untested thing. I don't know. I man, I, I can't say I fault the guy. I mean, yeah, looking back, you're like, <sighs> oh, womp womp, but still, yeah. I mean, you think of like, yeah, and, uh, you're right. Hindsight twenty twenty. You think of the toy lines that came out of the eighties. I mean, besides like Transformers and Turtles, Star Wars was like the other titan of that stool, and they mm. missed it. I throw uh. GI Joe in there for sure. G.I. Joe kind of predates the 80s, though. It didn't start in the late 70s. Am I wrong there? I don't know. I mean, we're talking 77 for this, so I'm it's not 100% point. sure. It's true. But okay, G.I. Joe would be a titan then. G.I. Joe sure. had some staying power for quite a long time. But I mean, anyway, yeah. Its bases alone were bigger than I was as a child. Like, it's a, uh, it's a titan. Facts. <laughs> so, Mattel is seeing everyone over at Kenner just swimming through a Scrooge McDuck vault of money after mm -hmm. the Star Wars movies, and they're like, we need to recover. In comes Roger Sweet, lead designer for the preliminary design department at Mattel. So Wagner pulls Sweet and he says, look, buddy, I messed up and I need your help. We need a toy line targeted at boys age 5 to 10 that could compete with Star Wars. Help me out here. So Sweet's like, I got you, buddy. And he goes down to the workshop and he rips apart a Big Jim action figure, which was an action figure that Mattel made between 1972 and 86, which is sort of like if you if you smooshed a G.I. Joe and a James Bond together, mm -hmm. like a less debonair James Bond, but a G.I. Joe who's slightly more sneaky, I would say. OK. And that action figure could karate chop, 
Oh, and actually it had this little maneuver where you could flex his biceps. Like it was a rubber oh. bicep. And if you move the arm, it like swolled. Straight. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's like Ken from Barbie with security clearance. So right. Roger like rips <laughs> this doll all apart, glues him back together in like an action pose, puts a bunch of clay on the body for like armor. And then it's a very like generic sort of action figure, kind of like Big Jim. And he says, look, I have the most generic, super hyper masculine name. It is he man. That's really freaking on the nose. Exactly. But he brings three proposals to the table. He's got He-Man in a little uh, soldier suit. Mm-hmm. He's got He-Man in a spaceman suit. Interestingly mm-hmm. enough, with a helmet that looks exactly like a Mandalorian helmet. Mm. And in this barbarian motif, kind of inspired by Crow Magnons and Vikings. Yeah. And I'm going to put that picture on Instagram this week because, like, it's hilarious to see the original He-Mans and to, like, imagine, oh, man, where could this gone if we didn't go with Viking barbarian? Right. For sure. Yeah, they're very, very different. Like, super all three weird. are super different. I like imagining that all of them are He-Man and two of them are, like, lost. They're like, how did I get here? What am I doing? <laughs> uh, very uh, David Byrne. And so he likes the barbarian motif. He's like, there's no other barbarian action figure lines out there. Let's do it. And I'd also read that, like, the whole kind of barbarian look was also loosely based on, like, Conan, Tarzan, and John Carter of Mars. Did you see that? You're a thousand percent correct. There's a sketch artist who gets brought in, now that Sweet started it, Mark Taylor. Does that name ring a bell with you? Um, only from this research. I don't know it outside of this. Mark Taylor is the same dude who got pulled in to fix the Ninja Turtle line when it was getting started. They were like, we need a better artist to figure this out. Dude, this guy's like the fixer. He's like the, he just comes in and is like, um, I'm going to print money for you right here. Exactly. And Taylor had been sketching because Mattel had a contract to do toys for the Schwarzenegger Conan the Barbarian movie. Oh yeah, that's right. But the minute Mattel learned that the Conan the Barbarian movie was going to be rated R, they pulled out because R-rated movies were like a death knell for toy lines back Mattel in the 80s. Mattel loves to like, nope, not going to touch out with a 10-foot pole. Yeah. They just, yeah. Right. right. So like this guy, Taylor, had been sketching Conan and he's like, wait a minute, I'll just take these and I'll make the He-Man line out of it. So during this kind of working time, it's actually called Lords of Power. Uh, yes. Before we get to <laughs> Masters of the Universe, which is which amazing. Which just sounds like a, um, <laughs> like a heavy metal band from the 80s. Lots of power. power. It's pretty you good. Know, you could just. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Uh, what do we say? Beef and power are the two like winning words in this podcast episode. You're going to hear power yeah. a lot. Oh. Um, so, so they get Ted Myers. He's designing all the cool vehicles they come up with. And I love there's an ad that comes out around this time when the, when the figures are just getting ready to launch where you have He-Man in the foreground and actually a bunch of Star Wars action figures are in the background, kind of kind of obscured by some mist. And the headline says, the power that separates the men from the toys. Wow. Thoughts, reactions on that headline? What do you feel? A little bit of shade. Little yeah, bit there's of, some shade uh, going down. A little bit of toxic masculinity, but you know, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, they're trying to make a statement because, uh, listen, as we've already mentioned, there's no beefcakes in the Star Wars universe. This property, nothing but beefcakes. It's like a Brazilian steakhouse. It's just beef on beef on beef. It's like a gold's gym up in there. You can't not just see just like muscle on muscle everywhere you turn. Yeah. So oh these toys drop in 1982 and I'm going to get back to them. But there are two toys I just wanted to briefly touch on here in history class that I thought were kind of interesting. There was a little play set that never showed up in the cartoon series called the Slime Pit. 
which was like a mm. torture chamber. Did you have the slime pit as a kid? No, this reminds me, wasn't there like a ooze thing from Ninja Turtles as well? Wasn't there yes, like a ooze very pit? Similar. Or ooze? Okay, all right, all right. Slime, ooze, gack, like from like yeah. 1982 to like 1995. Like every right. toy and show needed slime and ooze and gack. So it was this little slime chamber where you could get, you know, the characters would get dumped with this little proprietary goop. But the parents learned that the slime, you couldn't buy refills of the slime. So the hmm. slime would run out with the thing you got. And the only way you could get it is you had to buy two more action figures from the line and you could get more slime. Mm. What's hilarious, though, is that the retail stores had like cases of free promotional slime they had been given. And they just charged people like 10 bucks for another case of slime. Consumers were very mad about the slime pit toy, apparently. Uh, so feel lucky if you ever got to play with your slime pit more than once. Yeah. The other toy I wanted to touch on, did you ever, <laughs> I love this toy. Did you ever read or have, uh, anything about Stinkor? So I saw the name come up, oh my God. Um, but I don't really know much about this character. Holy cow. Or the toy, which apparently is where all the, uh. The fun tidbits are. So What's stink, up with this thing? Is it a scratch and sniff? Uh... Oh, man. You're so close, but you need like a ticket to Burning Man to play with him. So Stinkor, okay. he's a toy that was never on the cartoon. He's a bad guy. And he's a humanoid skunk whose power is that like super duper bad body odor and giving off toxic odors. Okay. And for the toy, what you could do is you could open him up and you could actually put patchouli oil in him. And so he would like permanently stink and he would like stink up toy chests and stuff wow it was so so that's a so bold move bad. cotton oh my goodness we're gonna get into it but the animation studio and mattel are kind of separately doing these things with with a little bit of crossover and so when the toy line pitched this to filmation who's doing the cartoon apparently all the writers in the room just laughed out loud and there's like and they were like no way this is the yeah. dumbest idea for a bad guy Maybe it'll work with the action figure, but we're not going to put them on screen. No way. There's some ridiculous action figures, so we're I would say that's that, that's a good call on their part. All right, so that's the toys, but these toys did not launch alone. Every toy came with a little rolled-up comic book, because we have to establish this world of where He-Man's coming from, where these guys do battle. It actually reminds me of a toy line that I loved in the 90s were the Aliens action figures, and each figure came with a little Dark Horse comic that kind of put that character in context. Uh, I believe they did that with Dino Riders as well. I think we talked about that in Dino Riders. Yes. Especially, again, for a property that's not, like you said, that they need to introduce kids to. It hasn't existed for a while, so there's no kind of lore and mythology, right? Right. Now, some of the mythology, I'm, I'm not going to go through the whole comic backstory in the whole world, because you've got places to be, listeners, and this can't go on forever. But I will just say, I liked a little bit of the He-Man backstory. So how, Chris, ah, Chris, ah, Christopher, how, yes. what are He-Man's powers? Uh, strength. Okay. Yep. Good. How strong is He-Man? Well, he's supposed to be the strongest man in the universe. Okay. That is accurate as we see him throw mountains and castles rather often in the series. Uh, he did fight Superman, spoilers. So there's yes. also that. He does. I don't know that he has any, other than pointing a sword at a cat and turning it into something else, he doesn't really seem to, unless I miss something, because he never really uses that sword for what swords are meant to be used by. Oh, throwing things. He's a good thrower. Throws a lot of things. Uh, He also also runs very quickly. He can outrun explosions and by moving his arms very quickly can stop a tornado. So Superman, what, flew around Earth and like turned back time, right? 
And so right. he's running around tornadoes to stop him. It's a much lesser version of Superman's powers. Yes, precisely. So <laughs> apparently, the- kryptonite is a little bit more potent than the jewel of gray skull or whatever. <laughs> oh, is hidden away done. at the center yeah, of the Tootsie Roll pop that is Castle Gray Skull. <laughs> Basically, the more I read, I, I feel like He Man's superpower is Deus Ex Machina. It's like whatever they need him Fair. to accomplish, he can do it. Except sword fighting. Right, except use the weapons he's armed with. Just like Ninja Turtles, right? We know back in the day they didn't use their weapons directly, but they would, like, whack a barrel into a guy. Like, Leonardo never, like, disemboweled a Foot Clan. Oh, you didn't see season three, episode eight. That was just a bloodbath. <laughs> it gets yeah, real we, dark. We, we didn't get to it in our episode, but it was gory. But this is also, uh, when this cartoon starts, in the late 70s, it was still, like, very passe to have cartoon characters be violent. And so, like, He-Man doesn't really use his weapons at this time. He kind of largely uses, like, body throws or tries to outsmart guys. He's not, like, a really violent superhero, as you might think of, like, Batman that comes on, you know, stronger a little bit later. We do learn in these comics that his mom is actually uh, from Earth. Marlena Glenn was a NASA astronaut on a one-person mission to Europa. When she basically hmm. got lost, ended up in Ternia, fell in love with King Randor, and they had Prince Adam. Now, these comic books that came with the toys, Chris, as you mentioned, um, these were produced by DC. So DC owns Superman. And so in 1982, number 47, there's a crossover with Superman and He-Man where they they get to throw down a little bit. Yeah. It's a classic thing where they're fighting each other and then they have to join forces to beat a a bigger bad. I think what happens is Skeletor kind of mind controls Superman to fight He-Man, but then he overcomes and so they team up. So it's it's very much in the vein of, I guess, a lot of these – well, I mean, Superman did it with Batman, right? They fought and then suddenly they're like, bro, let's just hug it out and be friends, bro. Wait, wait, wait. Is your mom's name also Martha? Are we on the same side? Best friends. Dude, we're uh, on the same side. We should totally fight together. It's, oh my God, there's like a bigger evil over here. We should put our differences aside. It's such an original idea. I'm glad no one's done that yet. That's great. Yeah, um, not, not at all. So Marvel buys the rights for He-Man comic from DC uh, in 86 and does some more comics, 86, 88, that he can mm. hang out with. Also note, actually in the newspaper, there was a He-Man comic strip from 86 to 91. Oh, no uh, kidding. Way. I missed yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little, uh, unfortunately, it only ran in 10 different newspapers, so not a lot of people saw it. Oh, I was going to say like Calvin and Hobbes and then Kathy and then you've got He-Man. <laughs> He-Man. Uh, can you imagine? Uh, okay, so the cartoon. And Chris, this is where it actually gets like, a. this is a big deal. This is like, for me, the big discovery for this episode of 80s High and why it's mm. important I think we cover He-Man. It turns out He-Man and the Masters of the Universe is the very first syndicated TV show based on a toy. Oh, so this kicks it all off. We talk about so much on 80s High about all these cartoons that existed to sell toys, and He-Man was the first one. Wow. Now, some of you listeners might be like, yo, Transformers. Transformers didn't come out till September 17th, 1984. This is almost two years before we get Transformers. So this is huge. Do you want to jump in a little bit on the founding of the cartoon? Well, I just want to say, like, to your point, its creation comes about because, you know, Reagan comes into office in 81, and part of his campaign platform and his promise was, you know, deregulation, and part of it was marketing to children became deregulated. So Mark uh, Fowler, I believe, and Ben, he is the head of, which one Uh, is it? Reagan appoints him to the head of the FCC. FCC, that's right. 
And, and part of that deregulation is there was this longstanding rule that you could not market to children through television, through cartoons. That was a golden no-no. And so a lot of programming before that, there was a lot of oversight. There were interest groups making sure that line was not crossed. But come 1981, that now becomes the Wild West. Yes. Those rules are out the door. And this begins that wave of cartoons whose sole purpose was to market toys or candy or whatever to children. Yeah. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find an 80s cartoon that wasn't this, right? Yeah. And this was the kickoff. This is the OG. Now, now action figures had been licensed from TV shows before that. The first one actually was um, an action figure from the $6 million man. Hmm. But this is the first time the cartoon... Like you said, its existence was to sell the toy. It's the commercial, right? To be fair, there still was some oversight. And so what what we find in this one is there is a, uh, a morality lesson in every right. episode. So it wasn't like a complete pass on being able to do this like pure commercialism, but... There was scrutiny. And so a lot of these shows would be like, well, it's not just purely for this, because guess what? We have a moral message in every episode. It's the same so... tactic that a G.I. Joe did with the PSAs at the end. They're trying to now teach something know. at the end. And now knowing you know. is half the half battle. battle. G.I. Joe. Absolutely. Exactly. If you didn't know that already, that is the foundation in which we come into talking about the existence of this cartoon. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. So Mattel's marketing director is going to Toys R Us. His name is uh, Mark Ellis. And he's like, here are these cool toys. They come with the mini comic that gives the background. And Toys R Us basically says, kids can't read. And they're like, all right, I guess we need a cartoon, you know, with no captions uh, to explain what's going on. So they decide to actually go with a a lesser known studio, Filmation, who had done uh, the Fat Albert cartoons. Mm -hmm. This show producer, Michael Halpern, writes the series Bible on December 1st, 1982, explains this whole world that we've, I would say, done a C-plus to B-minus job of explaining the whole background of Eternia. It's a lot, gang. It's deep. It's dense. It goes a lot. We've done our best. Well, and one thing to note is that the there are discrepancies, as we'll learn from this cartoon. The cartoon it does not take everything from the comics and the core backstory of He-Man. Yeah. And then, right. as we already talked about, what ultimately might even make its way into the toy line. Yeah. So they, they start shopping around this cartoon. And this is I think this is sort of a tricky environment, right? Like no one, again, this is the first cartoon made to sell toys. And that may be a hard thing for some networks to swallow. And indeed it was. Because they get rejected by CBS, NBC, ABC, and uh, before going to Filmation, Hanna-Barbera said there's no way we're going to animate a show just to sell toys. And so the only way they can get this thing on TV was this new thing I learned about. I've never read about this before. Barter syndication. So they bypass networks and they go straight to local TV stations and they say, pretty, 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 please, (laughs) will you run our cartoon and you don't have to give us any money or like next to no money, but just let us advertise the cartoon during some of your other shows. And that's all we're asking for. Just some airtime for ads. And apparently these barter deals happen in just this scenario where it's like an untested thing. No one knows how it's going to do and you can't get a legit network to do it. So this is what they do. This is how they get it on the air. The bartering. I didn't know this was a thing. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, right? And it's very enticing to 
a local network or channel because they need to fill the hours with content. Uh, it's an interesting tactic. I, I also didn't know much about it, but uh, yeah. clearly in this case, it worked out, I'd say, uh, all right. Oh, for sure. Um, Suki Levy and Saban, known for Power Rangers, composed the theme. Mm. I do love that the filmation director, Hal Sutherland, goes to local gyms and gets a crew of bodybuilders together, and they just start like tumbling around on mats for the animator so they can see like what big beefy dudes look like when they try and do these things. <laughs> I just love that there were models for it. It's so good. That's great. Uh, so the cartoon debuts in September of 1983, runs till 85, so just two seasons, each with 65 episodes. Now again, you know, they couldn't get really good funding for this. The funding is all Paisley just coming from the toy line. And so I, I thought this was kind of funny. And maybe since you watched the cartoon as a kid, you know this. They used a lot of animated sequences over and over and over again in oh every episode God. to save money. Only on rewatch did I yes. know this. Like as a kid, you don't pick up on no. that stuff. My favorite example was apparently Orko was originally named Gorpo. And you know, Orko is this floating magical character who's generally useless, but really supportive of the good guys. He's the comic relief. He's the, the Slimer of He's the real Slimer. Ghostbusters. That's a great example. Yeah. Uh, and so he has a big O on his shirt because we all wear clothing with our first initial on it everywhere we go. Uh, the Ninja Turtles did. Thank you very much, oh, Mr. Yeah. Smart Alec. Well, that was to differentiate them, wasn't it? It was a little more practical. Doesn't matter, Sassafras. <laughs> okay. So Gorpo, the animators turn into Orko so they could make the, instead of a G on his shirt, O. So they could mirror the shots of Orko over and over again, back and forth, and no one will notice that it's the same shot. Mirrored. Oh, amazing. I right? love that. That's a corner cut right there. Listen, they're putting the show out for free. You got to cut those corners. But yes, a lot of recycled content. I'm sure we're going to talk about it, but a ton. Yes. Now, this is an interesting one and uh, kind of fun, but I couldn't get an answer to it. So on Eternia, there are these like Hobbit-like little characters called the Widgets. <laughs> And, and they're always under threat, and they basically have a bat signal for He-Man. They can throw a light up in the sky. He-Man, we need you. Help us. Unfortunately, the symbol is a giant iron cross, which is the exact same shape that the German armies used in the 19th and 20th centuries, including the Nazis. Oh, boy. And that's as far as the knowledge I could go. I did read. I tried to Google. This seems completely unintentional. I mean, a plus sign is probably one of the first shapes humankind yes. drew in the sand with a stick. It's a very simple shape. I, I think mean, it's yes. not intentional. I, I don't, I'm fairly certain there's no pro-Nazi propaganda in freaking <laughs> He-Man. <laughs> you know, I guess times changed, uh, and it, you know, it didn't bother anybody really when the show came out, but when they rebooted He-Man in 2002, uh, the cross was changed to an H. For He-Man. Well, which, yeah, makes a lot more sense. So within two years, by 1984, it was on 120 different U.S. stations in more than 30 countries, and the entire property had netted Mattel $38 million in one year, and a year later, it was on 152 stations, and it was the most popular syndicated program from children ages 2 to 11, and again, year one, $38 million. By the end of year two, over a billion dollars. Value for Mattel. What? Making it rain. Eternal cash on Eternia. Mm. I'm coming down the home stretch on the cartoon here. A couple of the things I wanted to say that I just thought were interesting. The cartoon revised some story that the comics had established. 
And so his true character became Prince Adam of Eternia, who is the son of King Randor and Queen Marlena, who ruled the kingdom of Eternia. He got his powers from the sorceress of Castle Grayskull, which he transforms from Prince Adam to He-Man by raising the power sword. I guess that was different with the comics that came with the toys. This was all established later yeah. in the cartoon. I wouldn't say that the animation really broke any big barriers and was really groundbreaking in the animation style. I mean, do you, looking back on it, uh, anything stick out to you? No, certainly not. I think that's a very fair assessment. <laughs> okay. Uh, but it is one of the first cartoon characters, uh, superheroes, who is actually allowed to hit people. Like, he does throw some punches. He's got some kicks there. And I guess prior to that, it wasn't since Ruby Spears, Thundar the Barbarian, that that you could do that with your hero. That was new. Okay. Uh, but in the UK, advertising regulations forbid commercials from He-Man toys to accompany the program itself. So you couldn't be watching He-Man and then break and see a He-Man toy commercial. Okay, but you could in the US, it sounds like. Right. And so this is kind of this rule is kind of where that life lesson idea came from. Is is the animators were like, well, let's put the little life lesson in, and then the UK will be friendlier to this cartoon. So mm. you get the whole moral lesson at the end. So I'm gonna get into a little bit of the cast of the cartoon. What I thought was interesting is Filmation did not have to take advice from Mattel, the toy company. They could kind of do whatever they want. You know, they pitched Stinkor, and Filmation was like, no. Right. Uh, Mattel was like, hey, we're coming out with this really cool vehicle that has a sphere that shoots out and pummels it. We're going to call it the Ball Buster. And <laughs> Filmation said, no. But oh they did goodness. rename the toy to Bashasaurus. Did you have a Bashasaurus? I don't believe so. Did you have a Ball Buster? Don't believe so. Okay. <laughs> so... You're going to love some of these people who are involved in this. This is great. I'm not going to do a full resume. We're not going to go full crazy like I did before on Ghostbusters. We're going to keep it cool. This is a weird cartoon that I did not see Frank Welker involved in, who seems to be in everything you know, else. I, I had my eye out for Frank. Never graced the uh, the voice cast on this one, it looks like. Right. Um, but some of the earliest scripts were written by J. Michael Straczynski, who also goes on to create Babylon 5. One of my favorite sci-fi shows. I know. That's why I wanted to bring it up. I loved it. Uh, Paul Dini and Bryn Stevens, who are also writing, they go on to write some of the best episodes of Batman the Animated Series in the 90s, which is like one of my favorite cartoons of all time. Yeah. Uh, the Beast Wars story editor for you Transformers fans out there was Larry Dottillo. He was on it. Mm. And then David Wise was another made writer. Uh, he goes on to write the TV version of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and the real Ghostbusters. Yeah, there was a lot of crossover I noticed with other stuff we've talked about. I was like, oh, look at this. Uh, John Irwin voices He-Man. Alan Oppenheimer is Skeletor, Man-at-Arms, and Battle Cat. So he was big on Hogan's Heroes. He played was in Get Smart. He was in The Six Million Dollars Man. He was on Happy Days, even in the original Westworld. And, dude, he was on several episodes of Star Trek. That's a very nice resume. Oh, sorry. Actually, I missed your favorite property. He voiced most of the companions uh, Atreus companions in Neverending Story. I know that's, that's well, kind of like I knew, your favorite I thing. I knew there the was 80s. something amazing here. There's the connection. My uh, favorite movie of all times. Uh, Lou, this is kind of fun. So Lou Scheimer is the executive producer on many cartoons that Filmation did. He's one of the founders of the uh, animation studio, and he voices Orko, King Randor, and a bunch of enemies. I don't know how much helium that dude swallowed for Orko. I want to get back to Orko and chemistry, but my God, that character. <laughs> okay. Um, and the last one that you're going to love, I, I pulled this one out just for you, for our podcasting friendship. Linda Gary voices Tila, the queen, and the sorceress. She voices okay. a lot of stuff, but she was also, I forget which character, but she was the main character on Darkwing Duck. 
Oh, she's probably uh, Morgana Macabre. Yes, thank you. Yes, 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 yes. You got some Babylon 5 love, you got some Star Trek love, mm-hmm. and you got Darkwing Duck. That's all, yep. there's like threads here, man. It's like it making sense why you like all this stuff. It's all together. <laughs> As He-Man thrill, energy, swollenness is starting to run out, uh, Filmation creates a feature-length film called He-Man and She-Ra, The Secret of the Sword. And this introduces his formerly unknown sister. Yeah. Uh, She-Ra, to also try and start a series She-Ra Princess of Power. And how'd it do? Did you read? Did you read and see how it went? Uh, I don't think it went super well. I just don't think it caught on with girls in the same way that He-Man caught on with boys, I think. And I think boys were apprehensive about watching a show that had a main character be girls. Yeah, you're exactly on point. It did not okay. do so great. Princess Adora turning into She-Ra could not turn it into money. Moolah. And as we've talked in the late 80s, you also get the Nintendo Entertainment System, yeah. who comes out with the catchphrase, now you're playing with power. Ooh. Bing, 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 what, power. Was that a secret dig we didn't realize? Right? Whether like... Actually, now Actually, yes. you're playing with power. I thought that was pretty interesting. <laughs> That's funny. So all yeah, this stuff- Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of stuff got a little uh, kick in the gut come Nintendo Entertainment System knocking at our little doors and our yeah. little hearts and minds. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep, yep. So, you know, He-Man was crushing it in 1985, had, was making $350 million, and then basically the floor fell out from He-Man by 87 all the stuff we've talked about, but Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles kind of came in to fill that void. Transformers, you've got something. I feel like there's a way that we can revitalize this brand in 1987, though, Ben. I think there's something we can do. You know what we need to do? This brand needs a live action film. <laughs> I was just going to say that, but here's a here's an interesting point. Do we set it in Eternia? Oh, God, no. No, why would okay. we do that? Let's get it. Let's okay. make it fresh. Oh, hold on, hold on. Oh, okay, hold on. That's that's option number one. What's the most logical option number two? Uh, well, Earth, obviously. More specific. A shopping mall? New Jersey. <laughs> option just, one, Eternia. A, a land of technology and magic and mystery. <laughs> number two, Jersey. What is Jersey a land of? Uh, Bruce Springsteen and uh, <laughs> our friends Bon Jovi. Oh my God! New Jersey? Like again, there's nothing against New Jersey, but like, couldn't they just fake that it was on Eternia? Why do they have to what? like? Oh my God! And, and let's be honest, this is like the least of its transgressions. But my goodness, I read every IMDb trivia fact, and I could not find out why they had to set this in Jersey. I have well, no I'm going to tell you. I saw a behind-the-scenes video. Oh, good. Okay, the, good. The Get director talking about this movie. This oh, boy. movie was plagued left and right. Basically, every week, the director was not sure that they could pay the, the cast and crew. So basically, yeah. every week, it's like, you may not have a movie next week because we may not be able to pay people to do their jobs. Yeah. No, let's, it's let's, yeah. crazy. Let's get into the movie. I like it. Okay. Can, can, we, can we spend some time on the movie here? I love it. It's smack dab in the 80s, buddy. Let's do it. It's directed by Gary Goddard. They get, <laughs> they well, they try to get football star Howie Long to play He-Man, but they pick Dolph Lundgren after seeing him in Rocky IV. Yes. Problem is, like Schwarzenegger and Conan the Barbarian, Lundgren barely speaks English. <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> also a fact. Super heavy Swedish accent. You can barely understand him. And his contract says he could have three shots at recording this movie to be understandable. If he fails, he's going to get recast. And he gets it on the third try. I think they were actually going to try to dub his voice. Like, it got so bad yeah. that they were basically like, we might have to dub him over. And then eventually he got close enough where they were like, oh, okay, we're going to go with this. So you talk about plague. I just want to talk about some of the plague craziness. Anthony DeLongis's blade suit weighs 50 pounds. And he said that when he would remove his boots at the end of the day of shooting, he would pour out sweat. That's disgusting. Meg Foster's costume weighed 45 pounds, and she said she got bruises all over her body from the breastplate she had to wear. Do we know who these people played character-wise? Oh, sorry. Meg plays Evil Lynn. Okay. And you never see her sitting because it was physically impossible for Foster to sit down. This reminds me of the corset that Miss Scarlet had to wear when we did our episode on Clue. Yes, Remember, exactly. like, she couldn't sit down with Very her corset similar. on, so she just Very had to similar. always be, like, propped up everywhere. Beast Man is performed by Tony Carroll, and he's got these prosthetic teeth that were so big he couldn't close his mouth, and so he would just drool on himself all day on set. And the drool, he had like a chin prosthetic, and the drool yeah. would go in the chin prosthetic and get so heavy that the chin would fall off his face, like in scenes. This disgusting. is the most disgusting behind the scenes. It's Please so... tell me we're done. So, <laughs> I just have a couple fun facts, actually. Okay, thank you. Uh, the throne room inside Castle Grayskull at the time was the largest set Hollywood had ever seen in four decades. So very okay. large construction, which is kind of interesting. Uh, Skeletor's mask. Did you recognize Skeletor's face by any chance? Um, not necessarily. So frequently, Lieutenant Worf uh, fights an enemy in Star Trek Deep Space Nine and in Next Generation, and they use the Skeletor mask from Masters of the Universe for that enemy that Worf like, duels with to practice. Interesting. Right? I don't know. They're like, that's a great mask. Let's reuse it. Mattel ran a contest during this that if the winner of the contest could get to be in the He-Man movie. So Goddard is like, I don't have time for this. I don't have money for this. Here's this kid that showed up on set. So the winner is Richard Sponder, who plays Pig Boy and is a little kid who hands Skeletor a staff when he returns from Earth. So you could, you could, as a kid fan of He-Man, you could be in the He-Man movie. How about that? The last two things I want to tell you in the movie, it features a 23-year-old Courtney Cox... I was going to say, when are we getting to Courtney Cox being in this, in this movie? What a baby face Courtney Cox. Like, I so almost tiny. didn't recognize her. It's sort of like Sarah Jessica Parker playing the navigator. Like, young little baby. Like, I'm. what are you doing True. Here? She was doing? recognizable. I literally almost did not. I, it was one of those where I did a double take. And I was like, hold on a second. I think yeah. Sarah Jessica Parker just has a very distinct look. But yeah, a young Courtney. She had just come from uh, the Springsteen music video that she was in. So she was, oh, you know. Really? That's a cool catch. Kind of becoming a bit of an it girl. <gasps> oh, you know why? You know why mm. she came from the street? Because it was probably filmed in Jersey. New Jersey. She's right down the street. New Jersey. The last thing about the movie, this is great. So when the movie toy line comes out, there's no He-Man. There's no Skeletor. There's none of the main characters. Because they, they was such a tight budget. When they almost were done with the movie, they were like, all right, let's see the toy line. And they're like, oh my God. We never paid for licensing of the main characters. And so there are toy commercials that feature like the weird little dwarf guy from the movie. Like all the secondary characters have action figures, but there's no like Skeletor or He-Man from the movie. <laughs> That's a major screw up. 
This movie just seemed doomed from the get-go. And, you know, it, it's created to basically launch a new toy line, which, you, as you mentioned, yes, they already right. messed up. Hey, our stock is dwindling. We're not making that billion dollars anymore. Let's do, you know, in the, the toy line I'm sure we'll talk about has gone through what every other toy line does. Yes. Ghostbusters did it. Yes. Ninja Turtles did it. You start off with your core characters. You start adding more. And then you just go full on gimmick. And it's ridiculous. And it's out of control. And they'd already reached that point. So they're like, our last gasping, dying breath is this movie. And my goodness, what a fiasco. Did not and save it. By all accounts, the director ruled with a lot of punches. Granted, he's telling his own story in retrospect. Yeah. Nevertheless, the way he talks about it is it was like disaster after disaster. And basically, he's like, there's so many rules. He-Man couldn't kill or hurt anybody. So they basically like a lot of what they did in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. There's like robotic like army of goons that he could smash and destroy. So we'd go the whole robot route because then at least, you know, not injuring people. Not killing real people. Yeah, exactly. Also, I couldn't tell what character he played, uh, but Mr. Strickland is in it. What? Back to the Future. Oh, that's awesome. Wait, does he also just play like an angry principal? I think he calls Prince Adam a slacker. Your father, King Randor, went to this school. He was a slacker, too. He was a slacker, too. Can you imagine? That would be so awesome. Wouldn't it be amazing? Because, hey, this would be after the first movie. Sure. It could happen. Hey, if they're going to, like, recycle the Star Wars characters, put them in the background and be like, this is what separates the men from the toys, you know, why not have Mr. Strickland come in and rattle off a few of his catchphrases? Amazing. And then the last thing that I thought was really interesting that I had for this movie is the end fight scene they almost didn't have because the movie got shut down and they had no big finale between Skeletor and He-Man. So they had no ending. They had no final battle. Oh my God. And basically they were able to get enough money to do this like low backlit fight. It's basically that like lore of you had that one take to get it right. You had this really tight time frame and they managed to like finish the movie, but it wasn't the original vision. But I'm going to say by this point, basically nothing in this movie was the original vision. (laughs) Look, I I have to admit, I put it on the watch list. I did not get to rewatch it in time for this episode, but it is free on Amazon. If anyone wants to go give it a shot. Well, and, and apparently the guy who plays Skeletor that they cast... Yeah. Was like a, a pretty like good actor. And because Dolph barely spoke English and, you know, all the other issues, like a lot of people, the criticism was like, this movie's basically a Skeletor movie. And the director was like, yeah, it kind of had to be. With what I had to work with, like we had to rest yeah. on some kind of talent and it kind of had to be Skeletor in this case. So he does basically carry the weight of the movie, not our hero. Well, as a Skeletor movie, as we'll get to later in contemporary culture, is it about Skeletor's unrequited love from <gasps> He-Man? <gasps> bum, bum, okay, let's polish off history Ooh. for us before we start going too fast. Okay. There were several too video furious. games. So 1983, He-Man video games are on Atari and television, later on the Commodore 64 and the <sighs> ZX Spectrum. I never played any of these. Did you? No, I mean, I had the Intellivision, which is a Mattel yeah. game system. I don't think we ever had He-Man. And I did see there's a D&D style role-playing game for He-Man, which I think you and I need to go find and play because it would be hilarious. Yes. Okay, we're going to we're gonna live cast that. We're going to do it. That would be amazing. <laughs> that, I know that was a little more detailed than I usually go into, but I am done with the history of Eternia. Is there anything else you would like to make sure we touch on? 
There's so much more we could talk about, right? There's so much. But I think we've hit a lot of the highlights. And I would love to be able to talk more about our experiences yes. and a listener's experience with He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. And I think there's only one place we can do that, Ben. In chemistry class. So let's Indeed. hop on our Wind Raider vehicle and fly down the hallway to chemistry. Now you say, Ben, we already did that. But hey, we're getting over budget. We have to start reusing scenes. So we're going to fly down the same way <laughs> we got to history class. Repeat my line from the last classroom <laughs> transition. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. Those things have a little pickup in it. That attorney of magic really gives those little vehicles a little zip through the air. Oh, that was pretty good. I'm going to yeah. tell you. If I heard that exact same recycled battle cat noise, oh my god, one oh my more god. time, too much. Too I much. was gonna chuck my computer out the window. You know how like you know how like radio disc jockeys have like the soundboard where it's like, yes. brr, brr, okay, mm-hmm. Filmation had four buttons and they just kept hitting yes. them. Over. That was it. Oh, they sure did. Oh, oh my they god, sure did. We're here in chemistry class to provide a good mixture of love, sass commentary, what we thought about He-Man, what our experiences were with it. And Chris, as you always like to start with in chemistry, which I think is great, where did you first encounter these swole glutes, throbbing thighs, dancing pectorals? How did He-Man come into your life? Yeah, so the most vivid memory I have are with the toys. Now, to my memory, I only had a couple, but... My good friend at the time, Nathan, had a lot of the action figures. So I remember like he and I played the most at each other's house. Again, smash our toy collections together and just, you know, have fun in our room, coming up with stories, big battles, you know, knock them out fights, all that kind of stuff. Amazing. So that is my most salient memory of He-Man. But I do remember watching the cartoon. I just don't remember a whole lot of specificity. Mm. Mm. I remember enjoying it, but I can't tell you much more than that or how many or how often I watched it or what age I was. Okay. But yeah, the, the action figures, most certainly we played with. I think this was my toy. I had, I had to look it up. His name is Mantena. Mantena, yeah, sure. Because he has a very distinct, I guess you could call it a face. He has a very distinct He's a villain. He is a villain, yes. He's one of the villains. I remember that one the most vividly, and so I'm pretty sure it was mine. I know Nathan had clawful, because I remember the like the big claw hands. Yeah, I mean both so Mantena's redhead, bug eyes, kind of like a fishy ears coming out the side of the head, blue legs, I think. Yeah, he's like red and blue as the primary colors. Clawful looks hilarious and ridiculous. He has like a crab head and a crab yes. hand kind of guy. What are the uh, wrestlers in Mexico? What, what's Luchadores. that wrestling? He looks like a luchador because he's just basically like he's a man, but he has like a mask and like mittens on, yes. claw mittens. <laughs> he's basically <laughs> what is happening there? He's basically a luchador. Um, Buzz off, I remember, which is a oh, giant- interesting. B-Man. That's cool. I think Nathan had that one. Triclops looked familiar. Okay. And then let's see what else did I have. I marked. So I went and looked at the entire catalog of toys that were made. I yes, found a I, website. I, Unbeknownst to you, I joined you on that expedition. And I'm Great. excited to go talk through some of those. And we'll put it in the show notes, but transformerland.com Love is it. where I found it. I will say this one, though. 
I came across one called Bionotops. Uh, <clears throat> Bionotops. And I am starting to wonder if I did not confuse this Triceratops with the Triceratops from Dino Riders. <gasps> because in that episode, I remembered very vividly a Triceratops. But when I saw a Bionotops, I took a pause, Ben. And I cannot say with any certainty if I had this one or oh, that one. Oh, no. It was one of them. You know what we should do on our Instagram this week is we should put a picture up of those two toys next to each side other. Side by side. Side by side. Up. Also, could have been both, right? Could have been both. There's also that. Why not both? I'm pretty sure Nathan had the Road Ripper. It was like this speeder bike, but you like pulled a ripcord through it, oh, which I think cool. made it propel forward, if I remember correctly. That's cool. And then he also had a Roton, which is a single occupant vehicle that almost looks like bumper cars, but it had like a circular saw around it. Sounds sweet. So those are the toys I remember. I'm pretty sure they were mostly his, but I think Mantena was mine. I don't even know that I had He-Man or He-Did. And I seem to remember Skeletor was very hard to find. It's sort of like Splinter. Splinter from the Ninja Turtles. I feel like that was a rare toy that people didn't have Splinter a lot. A lot of those toy lines had like a really popular toy that was like never in stock. You just couldn't find it, whether it was rare or it just flew off the shelf. But that is my action figure memories. Oh, nope. I'm going to take that back. One more thing. Pull it back. Get it back in. Nathan had the Snake Mountain (gasps) playset. This looks sweet. I remember two things about this thing that I had to like do a memory check of like, is my memory accurate? The first was it had a bridge, like a little, almost like a rope type bridge on the front. Indeed it did. It did. In fact, you know, the the place that's on a hinge. So when you opened it, the bridge kind of expanded with it. It had like a piece underneath. So it could kind of expand. Oh, that's cool. Okay. I see how that could work. I'm looking at a picture of it here. I see that. And then I remembered it had a microphone. What? Now, it took me a while to confirm this. I had to go find a video of a, a guy on YouTube who had restored an old playset. But you'll see as part of Snake Mountain, there is a wolf head at the top. Yes, I see the wolf head. When you open that up, the wolf head is actually a microphone. And then there was a little dial inside and probably a 9-volt battery that when you put in there, a very screechy, god-awful amplification of your voice would come out of the microphone. Like, feedback galore. It was terrible. Crazy. But I was like, I remember a microphone. But just looking at that toy list did not confirm that was part of the playset. Took me a little bit of time. This is a huge playset. I'm looking at a picture at a toy show, and before you open it up, you know, it hinges vertically in the middle. It is a grown man waist to the top of his head. It's a huge playset. And then it doubles in size horizontally. That's big. Now, these action figures are pretty tall. They're like, I yeah. think, five-inch action figures. Yeah, right. So they're pretty big. And apparently, the the story was when they first did a prototype of Castle Grayskull playset, He-Man couldn't fit through the door. Because he's so swole. He's so beefy. Such a beefcake. Couldn't fit through the door. Shoulders like, for they days. Made the, they made the door too low. And apparently, like one of the original designers or an exec or somebody was like, oh, the kids can just like turn him on his side to go through the door. And finally, someone had the sense to be like, no, man, you're going to redesign it so that you can actually 
have the character walk normally through the door. Love- this isn't Gandalf going into Hobbiton and like having to crouch through a tiny doorway. Come on. I love picturing kids playing with like man at arms and He-Man. He-Man's like walking into the castle. And he's like, oh, bro, I'm too swole. And he's kind of like turned 90 degrees. He's like, yeah. oh, I'm going in now. No, I think it's more like he had to limbo through there. Like, yeah. limbo, limbo. That's yeah. freaking ridiculous. Ridiculous. I love that. That's great. So my first encounter with He-Man was accidental and unbeknownst to me that it was He-Man. At my grandparents' basement, when we visited, there was this toy chest that was basically a collection of my brother's toys he had outgrown. And that's what I would play with in the basement when we visited. And in it, there was like this little green action figure, kind of lizardy, very swole, Mm. who had like a suction cup for a mouth. Oh. And it turns out this is the villain, Leech, from the He-Man toy line. And I used him as a bath toy because you could like leech his little face onto the little tiles oh, yeah. in a bathtub. And that's all, that's all I knew of He-Man. There, there's like a way distance, way back down in my brain. There was like a glow in the dark looking plastic broadsword in there that could have been a He-Man sword. I'm not oh, totally yeah. sure. Now, your brother was just in town. Did you ask him? No, when you, I When you took have. a break from Star Wars, did you not ask him about He-Man? I couldn't even breathe. I was so excited to talk Star Benjamin. Wars with him. I know. Very irresponsible. But I did a little limbo into the same website you did, and I, I loved. Here's my hot take. I think the character design and how expansive and different worlds they came up with and the looks on Turtles is incredibly creative and very cool. I mean, it's one of the most expansive action figure lines ever made. I love it. Right. But I think the functionality that Mattel invented with the various He-Man action figures is superior. Like what they could do. Hmm. They actually did things. Okay. And I like that. And I want to, right at the top, I thought the Battle Bones Collector carrying case is awesome. It reminds me like if you found the skeleton of one of those giant salamanders you see in like Japan... And there are little clips along the rib cage, and you could clip all your little dudes to it, and it looked like a little dinosaur skeleton, and that's how you carried your guys around, rather than just like a giant lunchbox. Very cool. Right. Very cool. Right. All the heroes had the power punch action, which was cool. I love the little man E faces guy, who has like several holograms for different faces on his head that spins around. Mm-hmm. That's neat. Of course, Battle Cat is an iconic toy. Was there a Cringer toy, though? Oh, good question. I don't know. Who would buy a cringer? I want the sad, weak, terrified cat. That's well, me. Well, I mean, was to your point, was there a Prince Adam? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if there was. There, there's an angry collector listener out there somewhere who's like slamming the horn in traffic. Maybe He-Man came with like the, you know, like Master Splinter had like a felt, yeah. you know, like robe that he wore. Maybe there was like a felt yeah. like outfit that you could like velcro like snap in the back so he had like his prince adam attire and then he just tore it off and he was he-man <laughs> just ripped it off he-man yeah maybe i feel like i saw a lot of tila's and man-at-arms action figures um some friend of mine i don't know who had ram man which is basically oh, yeah. like juggernaut like a big metal dude very who could much knock down doors yeah but you kind of squeeze him and he squats down and then you hit a button i guess and his top half pops back up Snout spout looked very iconic, sort of like an elephant mask with a long trunk down the front. And you know what's interesting? A lot of these heroes, if you just looked at them without the backstory, I would say they're probably villains. Like, they have a look to them that's so, like, weird sometimes or creative that I'm like, is this a bad guy? Rockon. I thought you would have had a Rockon. I thought that would have been your favorite action figure from this line. I don't remember that one. He's like a stone dude. 
So he like he folds up like a transformer into a boulder. Huh. He's like your uh, what's that video game you like? He's like a lithovore. <laughs> he's like a rock dude. <laughs> a lithovore. Yeah, he's great. You're talking about Master of Orion and the Silicoids. Yes, yeah, he's, yeah, the Silicoids. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, those are the heroes I thought were cool. The villains you mentioned, Clawful and Mantena. Grizzler cracked me up. He's just like a fully, he's like a Chewbacca, but actual made of like a fuzz. Like that, we talked about yeah. it in one of our episodes. Oh, there were Wendy's Happy Meal toys for Grubby and Teddy Ruxpin. Oh, the, the Teddy Ruxpin, It's yeah. really short fuzz. So Grizzler is like mm. a grizzly man bad guy who has that short fuzz. Yeah. The commercial for the villain Moduloc. It's like when 90s commercials went all, everything was extreme, with power, and now this. Moduloc comes with like 24 different parts, and you can like plug in different legs and arms and heads. It kind of looks like if you made a toy out of the monster and the thing. Like, it's okay. terrifying. But hmm. the commercial is like on crack cocaine. It's so intense. Well, so is the 80s, so I'm I'm there. That's how we got Moduloc. And then Tongue Lashor looked so familiar to the point that maybe my brother also had. I feel like it played with this. It's like a purple snake man. I know, purple shoulders, yellow belly, snake guy, lot, like tongue that would come out. Another commercial I thought was interesting. You can watch, there's like a YouTube clip of like every He-Man toy commercial ever. And in the very, this is really, really interesting to me. In the very first commercials that came out for the He-Man toy line, it is a dad playing with his son and like his son's friend. Hmm. And the dad is like actively playing like, I'm, I'm Skeletor, yeah, yeah, yeah. you'll never defeat me. And it's like, I'm He-Man. It wasn't until a few commercials later when it's just the kids playing. And I feel like this is a marketing strategy switch from like, hey, parents, do you want to bond with your kids and their toys? To like your uh, pester power thing. Yeah. Where it's like talking directly at the kids. Sort of a weird transition. I mean, I like that though, because commercials up until that point think of board game commercials yeah right it's always a family it's always like you know right. mom and dad playing with the kids and so you could almost see them making that transition where they're like well dad's there and then maybe that doesn't play well and they're like well you know we could just have kids playing with kids because that's what happens at home like i don't right i'm sure some people had cool dads who were out there playing action figures with you Listen, my dad brought home arcade machines from work. So, so cool. that's pretty sweet. He was a cool dad, but he wasn't usually down on the ground playing action figures with my friends and I. He was doing his own thing, as he should have been. So anyway. <laughs> he should have been. I, I want to finish up the toy talk, though, with you. I've got a hot question for you that I feel like only you can answer. In the pantheon of action figure bases, all G.I. Joe's aircraft carrier, the spaceship – you look at the Ghostbusters firehouse, the turtle sewer, the Technodrome. How does Snake Mountain and Castle Grayskull hold up? I think they're kind of eh. They're very lackluster, to be honest with what you. What makes you think they're lackluster? Why, why don't they stand up the test of time there? Well, like if you do a close-up look of them. Yeah. Castle Grayskull is a very iconic look. It sure. does look cool, right? Looks cool. The Snake Mountain playset looks weird. It's like that weird little goat hobgoblin kind of <laughs> face on it yeah what is that doing there what is that is that supposed to be a snake but then there's an actual snake that right. comes out of the top which looks like an actual snake right it is a castle in search of a a unified theme it's like they basically <laughs> one person started to decorate it skeletor was like yeah fired. fired and then they had to hire like a second designer to come in who had a different 
mindset and was basically like, now hold on a second. This place has good bones, Wait, but I have, a, a I have a new down. idea. Yeah. <sighs> it's just, I'm not feeling the flow and the Zen energy here. But like the insides are very uninspired. Like they're not really interesting. Like I, maybe it's my memory, but I think the Ghostbusters house had a much more interesting. Totally. Setup or layout. I think G.I. Joe had some fantastic yeah. play sets yeah. by far. I just thought this one was kind of eh. I didn't think it really stood out as anything special. I mean, I would have happily had that Technodrome as a kid. Totally. I think these were a little eh. I wondered, though. I had this thought. The Snake Mountain toy, now that you showed it to me. You remember, the original sketch artist who came up with all the toys was sketching for Conan the Barbarian movie, in which Conan fights a giant freaking snake like the snake has the thickness of a redwood i wonder if this snake on snake mountain is a mark taylor design for the movie that they were just like let's do it or do you think giant snakes are just so everywhere that they're like meh parallel design i mean if you think about it cobra like the bad guys are literally snakes in gi joe cobra there was serpentor like that's just snakes are usually just associated with bad things well it's all like uh you know like christian origin i guess you know the snake is like the the original evil it's just basically a throat muscle is all a snake (laughs) is it's a giant throat muscle (laughs) why are you gonna discount snakes you're just a throat muscle that's all you are so anyway yeah i just i i I think that's what it comes down to. I mean, it could have been some of that Conan leftover design or inspiration. It doesn't matter. Ultimately, I just didn't think it was a – they weren't very interesting play sets. When you stack them up against others, I just thought they were very lackluster. Okay. I was curious. You played with – you saw some of this stuff. I thought you might uh, have a good take. As a matter of fact – Classmate Aaron joined us last episode for Clue, and when he revealed this topic, he cut it out of the episode, but that guy talked for like another 10 minutes. He popped off. And he was so bummed he couldn't join us, but I did say, hey, we want your input on this episode, so he didn't send me a few notes. Oh, yeah. What do you got? What do you you say? Well, I mean, this is going to cross over cartoon and toys, so do you want to talk about it now? This is perfect. Let's get into it. Let's get it. This is a great bridge. Thank you, Aaron, for providing a Snake Mountain bridge that extends between the action figures and the toys. Lovely segue. So he said this was my second big toy craze after Star Wars. So again, he's he's a kid in that sweet spot age-wise. He said he loved, loved, loved the cartoon and getting the figures was his obsession at the age of seven. Yeah, that's like prime age right Oh, there. yeah, you're, you're a sponge. He said, I received almost all of the Core Wave 1 figures for Christmas of 1983 and still remember playing with them while my brother blasted Thriller in our bedroom, which he also received for Christmas. <gasps> that's one so of the most 80 sentences ever written. That's pretty good. I'm pretty sure you can't get more 80s than that. Was that was great. That is amazing. But he said, I never wanted the Grayskull or Snake Mountain playsets. My friend had Grayskull, and I thought it was flimsy and unimpressive. Oh, there but you go. I had a lot of the vehicles. So Aaron, as a kid, little seven-year-old Aaron, agreed with adult Chris. Yeah, you guys are okay. Line it up. I like it. I dig it. He said he read all the little comic books that came with the figures and can never work out why the He-Man mythology was so different from the cartoon 
But what he would do is play with them by cherry picking the parts of both versions that he liked best. Oh, okay. Which I thought was interesting. He said, like He-Man and Skeletor, oh, both have one half of the power sword to unlock Grace Call. There you go. Aaron Ta-da. remembers the history. He knows, he knows what's up. Lastly, he said, an adult memory, but he did say, I watched the first season of the original show a couple years ago oh, as yeah. a way to wind down at night. Cheesy as an adult now, oh, especially man. the lesson portion. But it did have good nostalgia factor. Oh yeah, for sure. Now you, this is you wanted to talk to us. Tell me, tell the listeners your thoughts on the show. So again, I don't have a lot of memories of this show. The only thing I can remember vividly is the whole transformation scene. Oh sure. Because as a kid, that was like there was something spellbounding about. I have the power, like just He Man standing in front of that yeah. castle. Throws the sword up into the air. You see the transformation. The audio is very striking. It's just, it's a very powerful scene. And that stuck to this day in my head, big yeah, time. Sure. It's very iconic. Did you rewatch any episodes and prep for the show? I sure did. So I watched the first episode, Diamond Ray of Disappearance. Great. Love it. I watched City Beneath the Sea. Ooh, I should have watched that one. I watched The Heart of the Giant. Oh. And I watched The Royal Cousin. So I tried to okay, go and good. grab a couple from different seasons. And I will say this much. It's hard to find some of these cartoons. We could not find a full Snorks episode yeah. to save our lives. No, we could not. Everything from He-Man is on YouTube. I'm glad you pointed that up. It is all free on YouTube, kids. And it yeah. looks good. It looks like it's been restored. It's good. It's either a very well done fan site or it's like the actual, it's the blue check mark of YouTube. Uh, it's got the yeah. the red Y of this is the official channel certified. Yeah. Of course, whenever we revisit, I like to watch the first episode because it well, yeah, yeah, establishes good. the mythology. Uh, how about you? What did you watch? I, unfortunately, I came out of this really biased because I went and watched the two best ranked episodes of all time. Okay. So I didn't get a good variety to see like what a cringy episode might be like. So I saw September 84's The Great Books Mystery, which on Episode Ninjas ranked the best episode of He-Man all time. Okay. And November 84's later that year, Double Trouble, which is actually really, really interesting. Sort of a plot of, uh, you know, there's like a good Skeletor and a bad Skeletor and a good He-Man and a bad He-Man. It's, it's interesting. Oh, okay. So I definitely have a lot of thoughts in my rewatch. I'm not going to go through the plots, but just a few points I thought was interesting. First of all, this show loves bikini shorts mm. everyone is fighting crime now you feel like if you watch other superhero shows there's bikini shorts but also tights and this sure. was just like furry bikini shorts bare quads just going right in remember there. caveman barbarian that is yeah. our inspiration not a lot of outfit going on not a lot of variety there you know what would have made cringer a lot better the tiger mm. no lines that cat would have been awesome if it just never talked. Like if it was like Raja and Aladdin and just growled yeah. and then got really ferocious when it like transformed into Battle Cat. Or maybe it meows and then it sure. growls. Yes. Yeah. But I didn't yeah. know that thing was going to talk. And the minute it opened its mouth, it was like, no, he man, I don't think we should do it. I was like, this is the worst character ever. Cringer is uh, cringe to listen to. He's that is for sure. So cringe. Yeah. I had a lot of thoughts about voices. Like, can you just. Tell me a little bit about, since you lived through it, since you liked He-Man, Orko, 
what was the culture around Orko back in the day? Tell me about Orko. As you'll recall, I don't remember a lot about this show, so I cannot speak to any salient memories about Ugh. this show. I just wonder if people hated Orko back then or not. I don't remember hating Orko at all. Okay. And I, I, I will be honest, on rewatch, he didn't bother me, but maybe I didn't watch oh, obnoxious boy. Orko episodes. Oh, I thought boy. he was... Very much like any character of that kind. He's there for kind of comic relief. He's your Slimer. He's your, hate to say it, Jar Jar Binks. He's totally Jar Jar Binks. He's there for antics and silliness. And, you know, he tries to do a spell and it backfires. And he, oh, look what I did. You know, he's, to put it in the parlance of, it's always sunny in Philadelphia, wild card. (laughs) (laughs) No, he's totally a freaking wild card. Uh, I've got some other voice acting thoughts, but but what did what did, you know in your four episodes revisit? What kind of stuck out to you? I'll be honest, I was a little underwhelmed overall. Yeah. I mean, like you, Cringer was kind of annoying. You know, Orko had a, a predictable voice. You know, Skeletor usually a bad guy. You know, you think of I'll get you next time, Gadget. Maybe if we had Frank Welker, Skeletor yeah. would have been like He Man will be destroyed. Ooh, I could have seen that. That'd have been good. And I was like. Listen up here, He-Man. You know, he's got that kind of like- Dude, I'm so um, glad you said that. Yes. He's got a little bit of the penguin, like, I'll get you next time, Wait, Batman. I feel like he, he could be an enemy in Dick Tracy. Oh. He's like a nasally, snidely, whiplash, yeah. transatlantic. He just yes. sounds out of place. Which isn't a, a bad thing. I didn't think it was off. But, you know, when you see a skeleton man, usually you think of like, I don't know, like a more raspy, from the grave kind of a voice. Yeah. But yeah, there's that. I, I think the female characters were pretty straightforward. I don't think there was a lot of affectation on any of yeah. their characters. Yeah. Um, you know, He-Man's a pretty standard voice, as is like uh, Man-at-Arms and stuff like that. I didn't realize so. He-Man's voice changed. Like Prince Adam has sort of like a high voice that looks that looks really weird coming out of his still jacked body. Well, let's, let's get to the real issue here. The total dum-dums who did not realize Prince Adam... Was He-Man. Oh, I want to ask you that. Yeah, like, do the enemies know? Same butt cut, same bull cut, <laughs> same every single appearance. The only thing that changes is his outfit. This is worse than people who don't realize Clark Kent is Superman. <laughs> At least there were glasses, and he styled his hair a little differently. But it's just like he's wearing a different outfit, and they're like, whoa, who's this He-Man guy? Where does he come from? And, like, I did not realize literally three people know his secret identity. It's, uh, I think it's Orko. Yeah. Man at Arms. Yeah. Oh, and the- And the sorceress the, um, who gave him the power. sorceress, yeah. Wait, so his parents don't even know? No, his parents don't know Whoa. that he's He-Man. As a matter of fact, his dad is a total jack. He's yeah. such a, he's a bit of an a-hole. Right? He's so rude. King Randor is basically like, oh, if only Adam was more like- he-Man, oh, if only he could do something. Because he's, it's, again, a little bit of the bumbling incompetent. Right. But then he becomes, you know, all-powerful, throwing mountains everywhere kind of a guy when he's He-Man. All of these people don't realize. I'm like, dudes, he doesn't even look a little bit different. So they, I guess they were like, the voice is different. Clearly it can't be He-Man. <laughs> it's so sad. I thought about that too. It's so ridiculous. They tried to pretend this wasn't to sell toys, but come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. I mean, with the two episodes I watched, you know, kind of when I got to the end of them, I was kind of like, you know, this show does not suck. You need a lot of nostalgia to really love it today. But like, again, I was watching the two highest rated episodes, so I was sort of getting a biased opinion. But I didn't feel it was terrible. Like, the writing was was good. I mean, I did see some reused scenes just in those two episodes, which I was like, come on, guys. Spend an extra buck. 
Well, the reason I probably like the I have the power so much is they reuse that same scene every well, single sure. episode. Yeah. It is the same animation in all <laughs> however many 60, 70 episodes they did. Always the same. Right. At least Superman ran into different phone booths to change into his outfit. So that got reused. The Battle Cat growl, always the same noise. Yeah. Very obnoxious, by the way. Yeah, come on. No one's liking that. Like, they didn't even try. They didn't even take a take two and, like, switch it up and go back and forth. You could tell, again, this was a show done on Barter, clearly, because they cheaped out on a lot of stuff. And I think that is its... Yeah, it's not terrible, but it's very underwhelming for sure. I think if you don't have the nostalgia factor of loving it as a kid, you're hard-pressed to get really into this cartoon as an adult. Oh, yeah. No, I agree. So we've talked a lot about the toys. We've talked about the cartoon. Is there anything else you would like to tackle in chemistry class that we haven't already got into? You know what? There's just one funny thing that we maybe could have picked up in history, but I I saw some fun facts and – So you talked about Mark Taylor, who did some of the designs. And did you hear about how he came up with the character of Skeletor? No. So basically, he was inspired by, as a kid, he went to this amusement park, and there was like this creepy fun house. And inside it was a real-life decaying body. Oh, my God. Which absolutely terrified him. As it should. stuck with him into adulthood. And that was his inspiration for designing Skeletor, is seeing an actual dead, decaying body. In that amusement park funhouse. That's terrifying. But that's what I have. We here at 80s High like to be of service in many ways to our class. And I thought, you know, with this theme, you know, since filmation, went around some gyms and studied some some weightlifters to learn how these guys move. Chris, I know you're a bit of a gym rat. Do you have any advice to our class for if you want to build bulk? You know, if you want to get sick gains, what what do you need to do in your exercise routine to really get those big He-Man muscles? Uh, creatine. Oh, good. Yeah, okay. Pop there, yeah. Uh, whey protein. Whey, okay. Like it, good. You gotta do uh, chest day, arm day, leg day. Never skip any of those three. It's the triumvirate of swoleness. Uh, Rocky, didn't he like crack an egg and eat the yolk? Yeah, I think you're supposed to eat like like 30 egg yolks a day or something. Yeah. Like a milkshake. Uh, Suzanne Summers, thigh master. <laughs> gotta do that. <laughs> I did not see that one coming. That's pretty good. I like that. Jazzercise? Or is that sinewy? Is that not bulk? Does that make you lean? You need some aerobic in there, so I think that's great. Yeah. They can't just all be glam muscles because you can't fight <laughs> evil with glam muscles. You need functionality. Look, I can't think of any better way to end chemistry class with the phrase, you can't fight evil with glam muscles. Plus, I heard the cafeteria is serving creatine milkshakes. <laughs> oh my god. Can you imagine? Uh, Well, that sounds delicious. Mix in a little chocolate powder. Let's jump in our Wind Raider vehicle and drive down. And we've done that twice, but we're out of budget. uh, And have some of that creatine shake down in uh, the cafeteria. No offense, but I'm going to jump on Battle Cat. Just slide into the saddle. He's growling the same growl continuously, but it's (laughs) worth it. Because I'm going to show up to that lunchroom in style. I'll see you down there. It was good. All right. Come on. We haven't much time. We'll make it. We'll make it, He-Man. There it is. In that rock. Stand back. 
It's here, only at Burger King. A He-Man cup for your kids. Treat them to a different He-Man comic strip cup every week. Excellent. Four cups to collect and play with. To get one, just buy the Burger King meal pack. A hamburger or cheeseburger, regular fries, and a soft drink. Come and get me. We are here in contemporary culture with stomachs and muscles full of creatine to talk about what happened to He-Man after its fall from grace in the late 80s. Top of the decade, fall of 1990, Mattel re-releases a He-Man toy line and a new cartoon series, The New Adventures of He-Man. The central story is completely retconned, <laughs> and a whole new voice cast, a largely a Canadian voice cast, new characters, the toys still come with new comics to try and reset the whole lore. Fans apparently thought, yeah, the animation is better, but they didn't really like the characters, and there's a very different shift in the tone. It's not like light and kind of fun mm. and funny. It's very heavy. 65 episodes, He-Man now has a space helmet and golden armor to try and look futuristic. It's a new sword. Uh, but that's how they kick it off. That's how they try and rebirth it after the 87 movie. <laughs> I don't even remember this. No. Reattempt. So. Neither do I. One of my favorite contemporary culture things is four years later, 1994, before Canon Films goes out of business. This is the studio that produced Master of the Universe, the movie in 87. They said, let's do a sequel. To play He-Man, we're going to get surf legend Laird John Hamilton. Okay. Because Dolph Lundgren refused to do the role again because he hated the movie and how miserable the set experience was. Sure. Here's the thing. I don't know if it was New Jersey, but it was going to be on Earth again. But He-Man is in disguise in the real world as a professional quarterback. Okay. And Skeletor is in disguise as an evil CEO of a company. Okay. And he is named Aaron Dark. Great. What are we doing here, kids? Why? Aaron Dark. Oh my God, Aaron Dark. so ridiculous. Right, right, right. Speaking of false starts, Filmation's Lou Scheimer pitches a sequel series to Mattel in 1995 called Hero, Son of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Oh, so the lore is that like at the end of the original cartoon, He-Man and Tila marry. Okay, all right. And they have a son named Dare. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Dare or Dare who inherits the sword power from him, and it transfers him into He-Ro, who would go <sighs> on to fight the unnamed one. So Skeletor was defeated by He-Man. Now He-Ro is fighting the unnamed one. This has some Harry Potter vibes. He, A little bit, he's yeah. He's who shall not be named. Goes on exactly. So although the show doesn't get picked up, I guess super fans of He-Man love this idea, and this is canon, like fanfic canon. Oh. Fans love this of hero. Did they ever do it like in the comic books? I could not hero? find a, a real like professional hero is done. I'm sure there might be okay. some like fanfic animation out there. All right. Now we're going to jump pretty farther in the future. 2002, Toonami, which was on Cartoon Network, kind of late night cartoons, debuts Masters of the Universe versus the Snake Men as a rebooted series. What this cartoon series, the big reveal for everyone who was following He-Man, is it turns out is Skeletor was King Randor's brother. Dun, oh. dun, dun. My brother. Double cross and no good brother. So this guy, it's a little Batman-y. Keldor tries to throw acid on his brother's face, but Randor deflects it back on him, giving Keldor, who is Skeletor, his creepy uh, dead 
rotting body in a carnival face. Uh, also Harry Potter vibes. It's basically 100%. what happens to Voldemort. <laughs> it's 100%. Uh, I'm not going to go through every one of these, but the series gets re-released on DVD many, many times, each time with more and more and more content. It seems to me from the ones I read, the golden one is from 2005 and 2006 which is all 130 episodes, uncut, unedited, fully restored, tons of special features. All right. If you want even more background on the story, Roger Sweet, the original inventor of He-Man for Mattel, published a book in 2005, Mastering the Universe, He-Man and the Rise and Fall of a Billion Dollar Idea. And I think maybe you've seen this. There's also an episode on Netflix for the series The Toys That Made Us of He-Man. Oh my gosh. Aaron totally mentioned that to us. Yeah. I completely forgot. I should have watched that. Darn it. No, it's all good. Oh, man. Now, also in May of 2005, let me know if this means anything to you. Okay. And so I wake in the morning and I step outside and I take a deep breath and I get real high and I say oh at the top of my lungs, what's going on? Do you know the next part? And I yes, say, I do. hey. Oh, you're, oh, he's going into it, everybody. Okay. So this is like an OG meme. Out of nowhere, there's this YouTube video singing the 1992 single hit, What's Up, by Four Non Blondes. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like a Rickroll. Like, you send people a thing of like, hey, check this out. And you open it, and it's He-Man singing this song. And the animation is kind of silly. It looks kind of weird. It's sort of like the old, like the, when they redid the G.I. Joe PSAs. Right. But it has 209 million views on YouTube right now. I buy it. Very popular. So apparently it was done by Slack Circus Studios. I do want to tribute the people who uh, came up with it. But do you remember when that came out? That was everywhere. Oh, of course. Yeah. So good. So good. That was a big deal. 2010, the Power and the Honor Foundation was formed. Is this group of fans who are dedicated to preserving all of the He-Man work. So there's this whole website and I guess some computer in somebody's basement that has all the original illustrations, toys, and documents from Mattel, like blueprints and filmation, all scanned and stored for safekeeping. There's a vault. There's like a seed vault. If the world collapses, yeah. we can rebuild the He-Maniverse. So we can grow okra and we can watch He-Man <laughs> and look at the original like line drawings and designs. It's great. Concept art. I love it. Oh, I forgot about this. Right. So June 2012, DC Comics does a six-issue limited series, He-Man and the Master of the Universe. And in it, in He-Man the Eternity War, he is shown married to Tila. Okay. Now, there's no mention of Hero, uh, but there's the start of that, like, fan series. Okay. Here's where it starts to get really interesting. The, la- the last two things we're going to come down here, I'm really excited to talk with you about in contemporary culture. 2021, did you see Kevin Smith's Masters of the Universe Revelation. I watched that a little bit, and I watched Team in and the Masters of the Universe, the the coinciding 2021 children oh, aimed yeah. animated. We get two. We get two reboots. What did you think of these? So the revelation is geared toward adults, people who yes. grew up with He-Man who want to like revisit the property. So I will say this. I only watched the first episode. And the reason is I actually really liked it. It's awesome. I think it's It was sweet. very well done. Yes. It starts off already kind of turning some of the tropes on their head. Yeah. The animation style is really good. It yeah, looks it's almost like anime. Gorgeous. Like it's, it's really gorgeous. It's awesome. Like it doesn't look like the old one at all, but- I guess it just feels like the right animation style for this property. It does. And I think part of it's because you've got the right guy at the helm. It's Kevin Smith of 
hey, sure. we're coming back, the land of magic and wonder, Jersey Trilogy fame, Kevin Smith. Yeah, very true. He's like a huge comic book nerd yeah. and loves it. And so he like, I think he very well knew what to do with the property in the 2020s. The first episode was an immediate hook for me. I just thought it picked up well on the lore. It's not a retread. I would say like it's very clever, so it's not fan service. It didn't feel like at least, but it felt like, hey, we know what you're here for. We know what you're expecting. So we're going to give you some of those nods, but we're going to do it in an interesting way and also kind of turn it on its head a little bit. 100%. And I had read very little about it. I just went into it. I was like, oh, neat, a He-Man reboot. And out of nowhere, when Skeletor opens his mouth and it's Mark Hamill. I mean, let's be clear. We get the Joker and Luke Skywalker. Right. I was like, I'm in. I don't care where this goes. And Sarah Michelle Gellar voices Tila and freaking William Shatner comes in in part two. I forget exactly who he voices, but like, yeah, I was sold on the cast. Yeah, I thought it was really good. Now, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, the kid aimed reboot. Very different story. Yeah. Help me with the art style. It reminds me of Clone Wars. Do you remember the art style of Clone Wars? Yeah, we were like, is this CG? Is this animation? What's happening yeah. here? And, and one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle versions that we talked about, I very exactly similar what you're talking about. art style. Um, it's not my favorite, but that's fine. The humor in it, the everything about it, I was like, this is definitely for a different audience. I don't know that adults would find a lot out of this unless you're just a diehard for He-Man. Yeah. It also takes a different twist on the story, a different origin of He-Man. There's definitely more sci-fi tech in it. I wasn't super impressed by it, but I think it's gone on for like at least three seasons. So apparently it's doing well enough. But yeah, I I was like, okay, this is enough. This is enough. I've had enough. <laughs> apparently Netflix also rebooted She-Ra and the Princess of Power at the same time uh, for, for a kid audience. Okay. And of similar animation. This was aimed at kids, not like Revelation. That was definitely very adult focused. Yeah. And apparently it, it did kind of the same as, as the other kid focused He-Man did, the reboot. What I also liked about Revelations is like people who have powers actually seem to competently wield said powers. Oh, yeah, right. Like Evil Lynn and Orko, like they were actually right. utilizing their powers correctly. And I was like, Yeah, which is kind of neat. This no, is nice because I feel like that didn't happen a lot in the original cartoon, especially Orko, you know, kind of bumbles stuff. But like, yeah, I thought they did a good job with it. And I did you find Orko less obnoxious in that version? He was actually kind of interesting. I actually yeah. thought he was kind of yeah, neat yeah, yeah. in Revelation. I yeah. was like, he's got magic. What's this guy going to do? So I, I would say if you haven't taken a dive into it, but you're interested, even if you're not a huge He-Man enthusiast, just know a little bit about it, very easy to come into Revelation, get yeah. the idea, and I think enjoy it. It's great. Aaron did say that he watched all of Revelations, and he, he said he thought it was okay. He said not the best. Aaron, come on, man. Get on board. It's great. <laughs> What are you I doing? Know, I don't know. Maybe we watch it through and it doesn't stick to the landing. I don't know. You know, it's 10 episodes. It's a limited run. Yeah. I mean, he had the intense nostalgia, right? So I can see like if he really grew up sure. with it, maybe for some reason it's not hitting right. But for us who aren't fanboys of He-Man originally, we can be like, this is cool. I like this angle. I don't know. I think that's a possibility. I think also he watched the entire thing and we did not. So that's also another mm. factor mm. as well. Aaron knows what he's talking about. I respect his insight. Let's jump to last year. There's two He-Man headlines last year. Okay. He-Man and Skeletor both make a cameo appearance in the film Chippendale Rescue Rangers. Okay. Show, briefly. Sure. And also, so on April 29th, 2019, actor Noah Centineo confirmed in an appearance on The Tonight Show with starring Jimmy Fallon that he would be playing He-Man in the Masters of the Universe film, which was supposed to start production that summer. 
and was set for a 2020 release. Of course, something sort of happened in 2020 to all of us, uh, and he pulled out of the casting. Okay. But in January of last year, January 2022, it was announced that Kyle Allen had been cast in the role with filming to begin last summer and that the new Master of the Universe live-action movie would be coming directly to Netflix. I haven't heard anything about the production about this. I haven't heard anything else beyond that. But apparently there's another live-action movie in the works coming straight to Netflix. Exactly what nobody needed or wanted. (laughs) Netflix is really going all in on trying to bring He-Man back. I'm surprised. Yeah, they're really trying to hang their hat on that property. You know, good on them. Maybe it's successful. They're trying to do the same thing with Avatar, The Last Airbender. They're trying to turn that into live action. I'm profoundly skeptical of that as well, but who knows? I think certain things live much better in animation than they do in live action. And I think this is a classic example of that. But who knows? Maybe they can pull it off and do it the right way. I mean, you know, as always, we'll have to wait and see. The last He-Man related thing I want to get into with, with contemporary culture, which was one of the biggest things I learned. The veil over my eyes was lifted, and what had been staring me in the face all along, I said, oh, duh, of course. (laughs) And in my research, I learned apparently He-Man and this whole property is a very big icon in the LGBTQIA plus community and culture, and I had no idea. Now, much like Ben, this revelation might hit you. Speaking of revelations... (laughs) Just think about it for a second, folks. You have a single man who's good looking, obsessed with his figure, wearing purple and pink, with a pet cat who cannot live up to his dad's approval. This man retreats to a nightclub where he strips down to a skimpy barbarian outfit, taps into his, quote, fabulous powers of his true self and literally confronts the skeleton in his closet. Oh, my God. Which, by the way, is called Snake Mountain. So, (laughs) not to mention his mentor, named Man at Arms, is an older gentleman (laughs) with a mustache and a very suggestive helmet who keeps Adam's true identity a secret. Wow. As He-Man, he makes sassy quips, whereas Adam is more subdued, and hasn't come out to his parents yet. Listen, oh my God. there is so much gay iconography and experience in this show. It's crazy. I will admit, one of the reasons this show and that I have the power scene stuck with me so much is little Chris did not realize the gay child that he was. And <laughs> there was something mesmerizing about it. Yeah. But in a lot of ways, this is a bit of an allegory of a gay experience. You have Mm. trusted people who keep his identity a secret, his true self. (laughs) And he has to cower behind this facade for fear of what people will think of him. Yeah. This show has a huge gay LGBT following. And that's why you didn't have anyone speaking to your experience like that in the 80s, right? Nothing. No. It's not like now. That's for darn sure. Oh, Chris. I mean, bravo. Applause all around. Like that right up at the beginning. That's what I'm saying. It was staring at us right in the face the whole (laughs) time. (laughs) Oh, my God. Cat in a moody castle. Oh, so good. (laughs) I mean, you basically just repackaged the quotes that I had from the Johns Hopkins newsletter, the Daily Telegraph, Men's Health. It was like, like explaining much less eloquently what you just said. 
Yeah, throw a few in there, though. I'll sprinkle a little bit on there. So NPR noted that the bondage harness was iconic of the leather subculture in the 80s that was very considered very homoerotic imagery. Then there's a lot of really interesting like uh, LGBTQ publications, and I love some of the things they said. So when the live-action remake was first announced, the one we were just talking about, yeah. uh, LGBT Lifestyle Magazine Out described the original series as one of the gayest cartoons of all time, and that the 1987 film turned an entire generation of boys at least a little gay. <laughs> I love that. Instinct Magazine's Gerald's Bigger Staff described the original cartoon as being very popular with gay men who grew up in the 80s and 90s, and for many of them, He-Man, quote, prompted their gay awakenings. British magazine The Gay Times compiled a list of cartoon characters their editors were attracted to while growing up. He-Man was number one. Taking note of Dolph Lundgren. Yeah? In the same publication, actor Andrew Hayden Smith said 2016 he realized he was gay while playing with the He-Man figure as a child, being attracted to the physique, particularly the pecs, hence all my pecs jokes. <laughs> but here's what I really love. I want to I pull this out, which I think is really, really interesting. And, you know, and I'll really, I'll harp on this a lot when we get to math class, but I want to just pull it out now and touch on it. Wow. I should, not have said any of those, I should not have said any of those words uh, as an introduction to that. But here's what I thought was great. So Andy Stevenson, the creator, showrunner, and the executive producer of She-Ra, stated that He-Man, along with She-Ra, is a gay icon. And that the character's LGBT fan base has been credited as helping provide support for the inclusion of openly queer characters in the reboot. So that's part of the reboot, which I think is pretty cool. Right. And an interview with gay lifestyle online magazine, Queerty, which I love that kind of play. It's an online magazine, keyboard, QWERTY, Queerty. That's good. Rob David and Tim Sheridan, who worked on the Revelation cartoon series with Kevin Smith, they were talking about this idea of the gay fan base, homoeroticism, and created David, who's not only working on Revelation, but he's vice president at Mattel for creative content, said that Mattel as a company is very comfortable with He-Man's gay audience and the perception that the character is a gay man. I like that the company's like, you guys see this? Cool. That's fine by us. I dig that. Yeah. And what ends up being really interesting about this is like, that is an experience a subsection of the fan base that loved this show had, but other kids maybe just, you know, like Aaron got drawn up in the stories and the lore. He read the comics and decided to smash together the mythologies and like he had that cool experience. But yeah. for another kid, it was like, wow, there's something that this is speaking to that as a kid, I can't even articulate. And yeah. it may be a decade or two before you realize it had some impact on you knowing your true self. And, you know, something that sticks around is because it has some meaning and value and can speak to a lot of different people in a profound way. And this is about finding your true self, finding your power. That's universal. You don't yeah. have to be in the LGBT community. You don't have to be male. You don't have to be anything. Regardless yeah. of your identity, that is something that we're all looking for. We're all trying to figure out what do I add to this human experience? So that's really cool. I, I love that that's a part of this and that, you know, no one's trying to go retcon it or say like, oh, no, 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 that's not what we're trying to do. We don't want to alienate our core fan base because, listen, there's a lot of toxic fan base stuff sure. going on. Uh, Look yeah, at Star for sure. Wars, for instance. Look oh, at superheroes. But I like that Mattel's like, we're going to embrace this. You know, yeah. I like that. That's good. It's groovy. It's groovy. I want to bring contemporary culture home with something I've never done on Eddie's High before. I want to talk about something happening in our contemporary culture, and I promise by the end I get to it, it will relate back to He-Man. Okay. 
Are you ready to come on this journey with me? I am super curious. I'm on my, was it Roton, the little buzzsaw thing? <laughs> I'm following you on Battlecat. Where are you leading me? For once, I have pre-written a little thing to be ready here for the oh. show. So just about a week ago, the Writers Guild of America went on strike. Mm-hmm. In large, writers in Hollywood are striking because they're being underpaid and have been pulled into what's evolved as sort of a gig economy in Hollywood. Very short-term contracts. Yep. And we know, along with that, in our sort of very broken healthcare system in America, most people can only get affordable healthcare by being full-time employed. Save, thankfully, for the Affordable Care Act. Even when they get a contract and they're being paid, they're being paid way below the bare cost of living. And several interviews that I've heard over the last week, these writers, although their passion is writing, although it's what they got their education is, it's their second job because they have to hold down a primary job to be able to pay for electricity and water. And like this is largely happening in streaming because streaming has evolved and the streaming Hollywood culture and business model has not caught up yet to where we are with cost of living economy, but also movie writers. I'm going to bring it back to He-Man. On this show, on 80s High, there's so much that we love from the 80s that comes from television and movies. The games, the toys, and of course the TVs and the movies themselves. And all those shows and all those movies, there's incredible music that is written and performed in orchestras. There are amazing performances. Of course, we know in American culture and elsewhere, we're we're largely obsessed with the actors in these TVs and movies. But there are great performances. There's costumes, there's sets, there's makeups, there's special effects. But you don't get any of that until a writer dreams up that world, writes that story and writes that plot, and puts down the blueprint for all those other incredible creatives and craftsmen to follow. We don't have our favorite pop culture without our criminally underpaid writers, just like we don't have a society without our criminally underpaid teachers. Mm. So if you're reading about this, if you're out there, I just encourage you to go read up more on it. And back our writers, just like a lot of us did 15 years ago during the last 100-day strike from the writers. And if you get annoyed that your favorite show or your favorite movie is delayed or on hold, then it's time for you to be an ally to the writers. And do whatever you can to support the writers and the people who are creating the things that help us, as Chris just eloquently said, find ourselves and be better people. Mm. That's what I got going on. Amen, sir. I underline all of that. Double exclamation points after each sentence for emphasis. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agreed. And it's easy to say like, well, it's Hollywood. It's not a necessity. They're not engineers making roads, blah, blah, blah. Well, folks, we all enjoy entertainment on a daily basis. And yeah, these folks are the backbone and often just very underlooked and uh, underappreciated and of course underpaid. So 100%. We stand with y'all writers. We do. 100%. With that, let's jump on our Wind Raider vehicle. Got to reuse that scene one more time. (laughs) Fly down to math class and see how we feel that He-Man and the Masters of the Universe hold up today in spring of 2023. Are you going to ride Battle Cat again? Are you tired of the Wind Raider? Wind Raider? If I have to hear this Battle Cat growl one more time, I'm going to lose my mind. I'm jumping on with you. Actually, no, I'm going to stay on this Roton. This thing is pretty sweet. Oh, yeah, the Roton looks it's like awesome. a, It's like a, a bumper car, but with a murder belt on it. <laughs> so Chris has laid waste to all of Eternia on his way here. The high school is completely damaged. The lockers are shredded. There's light fixtures hanging down. That thing was a good ride, though. 
Listen, Shredder would be proud. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Chris, we're here in math class. Let's get into it. Yeah. Would you like to kick us off? How do you feel He-Man holds up today? So, Benjamin, if I'm surveying the lands of Eternia, if I'm inspecting the foundation of Castle Skull, I would have to say the classic versions have some severe structural issues. <laughs> As a cartoon, I think the show is fairly weak. Again, we've talked about this. Yeah. Recycled graphics and growls, thin plot, heavy-handed morality. We didn't get too much into that, but it's there. And not just at the end of the show's attack on like G.I. Joe. It is like woven throughout. All of this for the sake of selling toys. Now, I'm sure as an 80s kid, it was fun to watch, but I just couldn't get into the stories as an adult on rewatch. The one exception, as I mentioned, is that transformation scene for Adam and Cringer into their stronger <laughs> selves. By the power of Grayskull, that scene remains powerful to this day, if only it wasn't reused in every freaking episode. I think the toys in many ways suffer the same issues as other action figure lines, starting off with those core characters, spiraling into gimmicks and desperate attempts to wring the final dollars and tears out of the children's eyes as parents and grandparents succumb to the grasping breaths of pester power. <laughs> the figures themselves, I think, look kind of odd in their proportions, and the playsets, as I mentioned, are a bit lackluster when compared to other properties like G.I. Joe, Ghostbusters, etc. And the less said about that movie in 1987, the better. I mean, that thing was just a hot freaking mess. <laughs> but the one place I think He-Man and the Masters of the Universe does shine is its story lore. I think it is a compelling narrative of Ooh. finding your power Ooh. within, not taking shortcuts, and working together. Some of the characters are interesting, but the cartoon, at least, I don't think capitalized enough on that. Evidenced by the fact that the 2021 Revelation's spiritual successor, I think, fully realizes the potential of the world, yeah. its characters, and its premise basically from Go in the first episode. I was immediately hooked and wanted to find out more. It only just took us a few decades to actually get to that point. So overall, I think the intellectual property in the world of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe is still relevant today, but the classic cartoon and toys must rely on the power of nostalgia to still be worth a revisit today in 2023. Nice. Yeah, well put. Here I'm going to try and just say synonym sentences for everything you just said. Uh, we're very much on the same page. This is great. I think there were two major discoveries in researching He-Man for this episode. And I think one is it's undeniable that this is the cartoon and the toy line that started it all. The thing in the 80s we've been talking about for almost three full seasons, three years of 80s high, of cartoons made solely to sell toys. This is the OG. Mm. So I recognize the importance of that in culture and then all the effects it had on that, all the toys you listed in history class, all the imprint on the rest of the 80s is massive. It all kind of started here. Of course, like we've talked in the past, it's a double-edged sword. It breaks my heart a little bit that that exists to, like, manipulate children without is their parents around. Is that a double-edged sword of power? Ooh! Ooh, there you go. I have the pester power. <laughs> like I said, I think the toys are actually pretty awesome. The playsets, I agree with you, are not as great as some of the other bases and playsets. But the toys themselves of what they do, the actual action, putting the action in action figure is pretty neat. The different designs and that kind of stuff. 
Although it is maybe too many gigantic pecs for me. <laughs> uh, but like what they do is cool. The show wasn't that bad. But again, I watched the two best episodes. Not as bad as some of the other stuff we've had to watch for this show. Snorks. And Fair. I'll even admit some of the episodes of the real Ghostbusters. And for me to say that out loud, I had to swallow some serious nostalgic pride there. Mm-hmm. But there are some rough episodes of Ghostbusters too. I agree with you. The movie is awful. We didn't get into a chemistry class, but unfortunately that was also one of my first touch points with the IP was watching that movie. Oh my goodness. I just remember the little gnome guy with the weird key that was like a a keytar that opened some portal somewhere. That movie's awful. But now we know. Underfunded, rife with problems, set in New Jersey. I'm sorry, Jersey. (laughs) Um, I also agree with you. I think part of how you and I had this view of He-Man is I think it really is strong in, in nostalgia. To really appreciate this IP, I think you had to grow up watching the cartoon, playing with the toys, neither of which I did. So I I don't have a lot of like, I don't have an emotional reaction engaging with He-Man, like I do say with real Ghostbusters or Flight of the Navigator or something like that. Right. But I think the reboot by Kevin Smith, Revelation, shows there's still a lot of awesome. Like it's got, it's like you said with the remodel of Castle Grayskull, it's got good bones. Like it's a good, <laughs> it's a good world building. It's a cool area. And I think that goes back to Roger Sweet, the original toy designer who wanted to make it really open-ended. Like here's He-Man, he's a barbarian, here's this world, but it can do all sorts of different things. Like it keeps it flexible. And that flexibility goes on my last point is I just love how progressive it is. By Mattel being open to culture outside of their offices shaping where He-Man goes. I think that will allow He-Man to continue to evolve and do well and thrive because they're open-minded like that. And they're not trying to protect it with that original December 1st, 1982, I think it was, show Bible. I think that's really smart. It's smart business and it's smart art and it's really adaptive to your fans. Just like we are to classmate chad who suggested we do this episode i'm so glad you did chad thank you this was a joy fascinating and honestly quite educational and a great addition to season three of 80s high yeah chad hopefully we uh we did right by this property that it sounds like i'm going to guess you care a whole lot about because you you took the time to write into us and, and recommend it so thank you so much for doing that we really appreciate it so christopher we are at an exciting thrilling moment hopefully the sound stage is well lit and it's not like the end of masters of the universe where we can't see anything we know what's going on i just ordered my graduation gown for junior year from 80s high it's almost over and it's time for you to reveal your final topic pick of this season this is my final pick for season three junior year of 80s high oh it's big big. how do we get here already and I must say, I have something special for you. Ooh, ooh. Because it embodies the spirit of unsolved mysteries, oh, of God. true crime, <gasps> and of pure media sensationalism. Oh, dear. What is this? The setting is the Lexington Hotel in Chicago. Well, <laughs> more like beneath the hotel, where a series of walled off chambers were discovered in the 1980s. Oh, God. And while they didn't contain a bubbling river of pink slime, they certainly roused the curiosity of many, including a plucky journalist recently fired from his job <gasps> at ABC. Oh. 
Because you see, everyone, this hotel once served as the headquarters of noted crime boss Al Capone. Ho, 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 ho. And he was a man with many secrets. Sure. Perhaps even riches to hide. So let's bring back that fired journalist, Geraldo Rivera. No, my God. What? And the idea for a two-hour live television special filled oh with God. hype, speculation, an edge-of-your-seat anticipation as to what secrets 30 million American viewers would discover together at the exact same time on April 21st, 1986. This is amazing. That's right, everyone. Grab your pickaxe, roll up your sleeves, and don't you dare touch that dial. Because on the next episode of 80s High, we're punching through into the highest rated syndicated special in television history, the mystery of Al Capone's vaults. Chris! This is huge. First of all, we've never done anything like this on no, 80s High. This we like one-off TV special live. Also, I love that you're tapping into like the internet culture of true crime and just like cracking open safes. Yeah. Like people love that. Like what's behind the mystery door we found yes. in our new house. This yes. is Ed Rivera. I mean, what a bonkers character. Like what a crazy personality we're going to get into. Whoa, what a cool pick. I would have never guessed this in a million years. This is one of those things that I'm like, and I know we've done this before. We're like, wait, was this actually in the 80s? And Almost often, it's like 1991. And you're like, no! No! And so I wanted to do something that was kind of like media, like a a one-time thing that happened that took the world by storm. And it just sort of dawned on me of like, whoa, we actually have that thing, this television special. So I'm super excited to like go re-experience that two hours of television uh, I haven't really gone back to it since we watched it live as a family. So I am oh super stoked God. to check this out. I love it. Get out your magnifying glasses, your fingerprint dusting powder, and get ready to crack the vault. That is the best 80s mix podcast out on the interwaves. When you join us next time on... On 80s high, see? And then I shoot 80s high with bullets into the side of the building. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everyone, for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help spread the rumor. Stay radical!